Hey everyone, Cassius Felicelli here, and welcome to another episode of the Homeroom Podcast. And today, we're speaking with Luke Zan, an investor at At One Ventures. At One is an early-stage, deep-tech venture firm backing founders tackling the climate crisis. I think it would be really interesting for you to start off by maybe just giving a bit of a primer, introducing yourself. You worked at the DOE, you worked at Accenture in consulting. How exactly did you end up in venture? Well, first of all, I just really want to thank you for having me on the podcast, Cassius. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and happy to speak about my experiences. So like you said, I, I sort of started my career at the Department of Energy, uh, specifically researching how to store about 50 million tons of carbon dioxide in the Cascadia Basin, which is essentially this basalt rock formation um, off the coast of uh, the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. And specifically, I was leading sort of the techno-economic assessment of that, meaning looking at the cost of transporting and injecting that CO2 deep beneath the seabed. And sort of what I realized there was that I loved working on these moonshot, highly technical projects. But, you know, the main takeaway from that was, you know, without even considering the cost of capture, the transport and injection costs of putting that CO2 beneath the ground were already penciling out to be pretty financially infeasible, at least when it came to sort of the private sector and carbon markets and the like. So, you know, from that experience, I really wanted to pivot into consulting and, and eventually went to Accenture with the hopes of really gaining that private sector lens and that business financial feasibility lens. And when I was at Accenture as a consultant, I worked on a variety of climate and sustainability projects and definitely picked up that, you know, skill set. But I think one, you know, oftentimes I would say the projects didn't necessarily feel ambitious enough to me or were maybe only addressing one part of the client's business. And two, I think a lot of consultants will find the pain point that it's like, okay, once you hand over this shiny slide deck of what your recommendations are for the client, it's always can be put to question whether or not those recommendations will be implemented. Um, so that was some of the pain points that I had from that experience. And, you know, what I love about my role at One now is it's, it's a sort of blend of the best of those two experiences. I get to invest in and work on a lot of these moonshot projects and, and back, you know, amazing entrepreneurs in the climate space, but with a deep, deep lens on, you know, financial viability and, and disruptive unit economics. Right. Can, can you recall a moment where you knew that you did want to make those shifts? Like, were there certain questions that you asked yourself or was there a particular experience that you came across and said, you know what, this is great, but not for me? I think, yeah, it's a good question of realizing when you get to sort of these inflection points in your career. I think a lot of the times, if you have clarity on your North Star and where you're sort of going, you know, sort of the general direction and trajectory you need to be heading towards. And also I think it's about trusting your intuition, right? I think in a lot of these cases, early on in my career, I realized that I was still learning. And at the beginning of a lot of these experiences, it was very exciting and I was definitely learning a lot. Um, but there comes a point where I think you're learning plateaus and you realize, okay, maybe this isn't necessar necessarily serving my, my sort of long-term goals or the sort of long-term impact that I want to have. And then, yeah, it really just becomes... Um, pretty apparent, at least to me, that you know, a change was needed at certain points. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, on one hand, there's I don't know people. If you go on YouTube, for example, or social media, there's all these you know how to be more productive videos. And on the other hand, it's 
you know, there's the mantra of fail fast in the startup world and stuff like that. And then to the point of like that productivity point kind of side, it's like, you know, outsized returns come from compounding actions, right? So yeah, I feel like it always is kind of tough to know when you should move on versus, you know, hey, maybe I should put in more time here. Maybe I need to experience more things. Maybe I'm just young on the team and I don't really, you know, I just don't know the full sphere of what, what goes on in the job just yet. I gotcha. Okay. So jumping to that next question, um, when do you, when did you kind of, let, let me ask question number three. For, for students, what kind of people do you think would enjoy this job uh, versus not like it? Maybe you can speak to what a typical day looks like as an associate at the firm and we can take it from there. Totally. And I'll quickly give it a quick intro about Outland Ventures just to sort of ground people in what we do and the type of work that we do. So yeah, Outland Ventures, we're a venture fund founded in 2020. Our thesis is really around backing deep tech entrepreneurs that are helping to make humanity a net positive to nature. And I like to say that really means acting across three different domains. One is emissions reduction. Number two is ecosystem restoration. And number three is rethinking our materials economy. And we typically invest at the pre-seed to sort of series A stages. So very, very early stage, almost always pre-revenue companies with pretty early stage nascent technology. Um, so yeah, the typical day I would say is a combination, at least for me as a senior associate as, you know, sourcing. So that means finding potential investments. So that can come from either, you know, developing a certain outlook and a thesis on a sector and how you think, you know, that sector will decarbonize and looking for startups that fit the bill of what you think a successful solution in that space might look like and doing proactive sourcing in that way. It can also mean, you know, attending different industry events, demo days for certain accelerators and incubators and getting that sort of exposure as well. So it's that kind of sourcing. Then it's about, you know, actually meeting the founders and, and talking with them and learning more about their solution and hearing their pitches. And then after that, diligencing the, diligencing the company, uh, making sure that it's hitting all of our investment criteria. For us, I think the most important is impact. We assess the impact on every single deal that we do. We also care a lot about unit economics, that means that we want to back solutions that are at least at cost parity with the incumbent sort of fossil or dirty solution that's out there. We don't believe that anything will will scale or reach sort of meaningful impact with a green premium. So that's very important to us. Uh, so that's diligence in companies. And then um, I would say the other main bucket would be supporting the portfolio with really whatever they need at the end of the day, whether that's support on introduction to other investors for their subsequent later stage financing, working with them on go-to-market or other sort of top of mind strategy projects or, you know, anything. So that's, that's really a typical day. Um, I would say for people that would like this, I think particularly when it comes to deep tech investing, which is what I'm going to speak towards is since that's what's that, what, what I'm involved in. I don't really have much exposure on, on the software side, but in deep tech, I think you do have to be a little bit nerdy. <laughs> you do have to really, you know, like science and engineering and you want, you want to be able to understand how sort of these physical technologies work, right? Like we're not looking at lines of code. At the end of the day, we're looking at physical technologies, different chemistries for producing cement and steel, different renewable technologies, battery technologies, food, ag, transportation. So it really covers the gamut. Um, so you need to be curious, you need to be imaginative, and you need to enjoy sort of crafting what the future might look like. But you also, at the same time, you can't just be like, ah, like this is 
what I think the future should look like, like, okay, we're going to go after it. Like it needs to be grounded in a clear theory of change. I think that is data driven, grounded in really strong fundamentals and, you know, having that intellectual discipline of seeking the truth and being able to change your mind constantly, depending on what information you uncover and being able to challenge yourself and refine sort of your thesis or your conviction on a certain deal at any given moment. Yeah, let's t- let's touch on that a little bit more the the sourcing and the diligence side because the investors that I've had on in the podcast before they've always told me that when they've made an investment it's part of it's emotional right they're super passionate about the people the team the objectives they're hoping to accomplish on the other hand there is that you know technical expertise but I think it's a bit far fetched to say hey if you're looking at EV toll companies one day. And then you're looking at carbon capture for, let's say, you know, data centers the next day. You can't be an expert in everything. So how, how do you kind of balance that? You mean as an expert in everything as the investor? Yeah, you just mean how, how do you kind of balance your em- emotional side of it where you get super pumped up, but at the same time, you need to look through all, like I'm sure at one has its own, you know, list of requirements that needs to go, that needs to go into an investment before it's done. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I would say we try to take the emotional part of it um, as much out of it as possible throughout the whole process. I think our theory of change really revolves around these sort of disruptive techno-economics. So we really back breakthrough science and engineering innovation that drives better physics fundamentals. So a savings when it comes to energy, time, matter, or space that then drives better financial fundamentals, right? That drives lower costs that allows these solutions to compete without a room premium. So when it comes to our analysis, it's really about looking at these technologies. And typically we invest at things if they're at least at the TRL three or four stage. And what what does that mean? Lab bench. So what we mean by that is that we want to at least see some sort of benchtop proof of concept or prototype where we can reasonably sort of measure to a good degree of confidence the inputs and the outputs of that product or of that process. And as a result of that, be able to create a model um, from that called a techno-economic analysis that allows us to sort of understand how the different technical inputs are linking to the the final cost of that good or of that process. so as long as we can believe that and we believe that the technology has been sufficiently de-risked and that the scale-up is reasonably uh, believable as well, then that that gives us conviction to invest. I, I gotcha. Okay. So I know you can't share everything on this point, but as much as you can, let's say they clear that stage. They've got a prototype. They have some proof of concept, minimum viable product. What are some of the questions that you ask them after that stage? After that, I would say a lot of our questions after that stage, a lot of our questions, period, are around the technology or around what has been de-risked or around what are the key sort of challenges and scale-ups and what do they see as the mitigants in that. We also deeply question sort of the, their commercial chops and what they see as the go-to-market. We do extensive questioning, not just of them, but we turn towards the market and we go out and interview tons of customers as part of every deal, asking them, hey, does this solution does it address any of your top three key, top three pain points? Um, you know, what does the sales cycle look like for you? What are the key criteria when it comes to you thinking about adopting, you know, new novel technology? Um, 
like this. And so we probe that side of, of things as well. I gotcha. Okay. What was something that was a bit counterintuitive? Because I think that startups, for example, I work at an early stage startup. The mistake I made was that I romanticized it quite a bit. <laughs> but the days are actually like, they're pretty long and they're pretty stressful. Um, so was there something on your end that you thought was going to be one way, but it was different in venture? Uh, that's a good, good question. Maybe I didn't think that it was, maybe it was a slight variant to your question, but one thing that was unexpected to me was a lot of the job is saying no <laughs> a lot of the time, right? Like, I think we source like thousands of investments every year, but we might only, I think our our hit rate is like, 0.1 or 0.3% in terms of the amount of investments we source that we actually deploy capital in, right? Something very low like that. So a lot of the time, yeah, it's about, you have to be comfortable with that at the end of the day. And you also have to be comfortable with, it's not an immediate gratification game, right? Maybe it's, maybe on the operator side, you can see sort of the specific fruits of your labor on a, on a day-to-day or maybe a weekly or a monthly basis. But in venture, you know, you place these bets and you're not going to necessarily know how any of these startups really are going to turn out for another five, seven, 10 years down the line. So you have to have that, that patience about you as well. I gotcha. Before we jump to question four on the list, the value of boards and other kind of traditional things that we hear about in venture capital, um, maybe you could speak to the process of how an investment gets made as well. As a senior associate, what do you do to present things to the partnership and how do those conversations go? Yeah, I would say specifically my experience at Alwana, our, our organization structure is pretty flat, which I love. Um, and sort of the way that decisions get made is that, you know, at the beginning of a deal, I might be looking at something, doing the preliminary assessment, but then at a certain point it gets elevated to the whole team and it becomes a very collaborative process where everybody is doing some part of the diligence on the deal and getting acquainted with the deal and and meeting the team. Um, And so that way, everybody through that process, not only contributes to the diligence, but is able to build their own sort of level of conviction and things. And then from that point on, it's really a a group discussion. Um, Yes, it is mainly a decision at the end of the day. It's a vote amongst the three partners. But as a team, we have many, many (laughs) discussions about every deal that we get involved in. Okay. So let's say, let's say you present a, you know, a company to the board, company X, um, Tom looks at it and he says, you know what, we want to do this investment. What, what takes place after that? So once we get the green light on an investment. Yeah, exactly. Like what's the next step? Is the, is that it for you? Is there, is there more work to be done when it comes to the founders yeah. and stuff like that? Once we green light an investment, then it sort of kicks into the the term sheet stage. So at that point, we'll we typically like to lead rounds of that as that one, which is why I say we'll advance a term sheet, which is what a lead investor does, outlining like the key terms of the deal, like the amount of money in the round, the valuation on the round, the structure of the board, et cetera, et cetera. It's a whole lot of economic and also non-economic um, terms in in that sheet. Um, so. We'll, we'll advance a term sheet. There will probably be a bit of back and forth and negotiation with the, the founding team at the startup. And then after that point, it's about just once the term sheet has been signed, it's about legal due diligence just to make sure 
all those boxes have been checked and there's no skeletons in the closet. And at that point, after that, it's it's deal closing and, and you wire the funds. Makes sense. Okay, that's cool. Um, let's say Tom says, no, we're not going to invest. Is there still a bit of effort that takes place on your end for maintaining the relationship with the founder? Because to your point, I mean, there's so many people that come through your door. Maybe it's Maybe it's the right tech, but not at the right time. Or maybe you need to see more from the team before making that investment. Absolutely. That's a great question. And I appreciate it because I think definitely our ethos at at one is to be as helpful as possible. Even if, you know, we pass on something, even before it reaches the team stage, I like to give feedback on what I saw as the strengths of that investment and maybe what I saw as areas to work on or areas to pivot for the founder. And I think, you know, they appreciate that and the relationship with investors doesn't have to be this sort of confrontational or sort of, you know, I'm just going to pass on the investment and never talk to you again kind of thing. But certainly I would say at, at the, uh, even at the later stages of, you know, our investment process, when we've been talking to a company for months and months and we're like almost across the finish line, but then it doesn't quite make it. And we, we end up passing. We definitely love to keep in touch with those companies. Usually, like you said, it is a matter of maybe we would like to see a bit more, of the technology or the skill up risk um, go away, or we want the market to be the product market fit to be de-risked a little bit more. But yeah, we, we love to keep in touch in those circumstances. Awesome. Okay. Jump into question number four. I see on LinkedIn all the time, board member, board observer. What does that mean? What does it mean to be on a board? What, what does that typically look like from, from both roles? Mm-hmm. So a board member means, so boards of, um, startups are like the governing body of that startup. Typically, it's composed of a combination of leaders from the startup itself, usually the CEO and maybe some of the other founders, as well as some of the more significant major investors that have been part of the journey of that company. Um, and typically, these boards meet on a quarterly basis, and they and typically the the founders will give a very high level update on the KPIs and what's been happening in the business. And if, you know, any votes need to be happened on strategic issues, then those will happen with the board. So the board does have um, certain say in issues, and those are often defined in the term sheet that I was talking about previously. Um, so that's typically what a board does. Um, and yeah, I think there is value in being on boards. Typically for us, like I said, we tend to lead investments. And so we put a lot of diligence into each of our investments. And that means that we could we become very well acquainted with the business and we become very well aware of what needs to be de-risked in that company. So for us, when we lead an investment, we always ask for a board seat as a way to really stay close, as one way to really stay close to that company. Although we do a whole lot else beyond just the board meetings with our companies and work through those issues, right, with them. And, and vote sort of in those directions when needed. Okay. That, that's another question I had, though. When it comes to the hands-on approach, there are some people that I've interviewed on the program where they sit on like six or seven boards. And I think that's really cool because you get all this experience and you get to, you know, you get to be inspired all the time. I'm an inspiration junkie. But I wonder, to your point, how, how much value is actually being added at the end of the day? Like, it, is it valuable to be on that many boards or even boards in general? Yes, and yes, in terms of, 
you know, if there are any critical issues or any red flags that the company raises on those quarterly bases, I think it is um, important to intervene, especially because, you know, oftentimes you're talking about the top issues of the company that are very material during those meetings. So it's, of course, good to keep your hand on that pulse. But I would say a lot of our value add as investors comes outside of those board meetings. We gather the information during those board meetings, but then we have, you know, biweekly or monthly sort of touch points with our companies where we're very hands-on with them, you know, working through, we have a full-time resource on our team that helps them with hiring of like C-suite talent, that helps them with marketing and branding and getting their name out in critical nodes in the marketplace. We have entrepreneurs in residence that help them with actually, because we're working with hard tech, working on them with the, the manufacturing skill of journey and, and the product development. So I would say that's where our real alpha comes um, when it comes to portfolio support, not necessarily just from what we are doing in those board meetings. Yeah, of course. It's 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 what takes pl- place behind the scenes as well. Um, curiosity question here. This wasn't on the list, but uh, at one, invest in the early stage, pre-seed, seed, series A. At those different kinds of stages, what do you see as the most the most needed thing by those founders? Because as the company scales, the types of risks change and the things that they might need and require from investors and other people in their networks will also change. I think broadly, these days, there's a lot to do around, I think, A, storytelling. I think there's been a huge explosion in climate tech in the last few years. And really, when pitching to investors, it's not only about saying how you're the best, that, that you're a good startup, much less to say that you're sort of the best startup in your category, but you also have to say that you're the best startup sort of even amongst other categories, like your sector. For example, right now, I think cultivated meat is taking a bit of a, of a beating in the market. So those startups not only have to communicate that, okay, we're the best sort of cultivated meat startup, but you also have to communicate to investors, okay, that we're worth, it's worth investing in us versus working in other entire sectors that might be up at the moment when our sector is down. So there's that element. And I think fundraising in general for startups at this stage is very tough. Like we usually invest at the seed stage. Um, And so the next round that we have to support with is a series A, which I think typically for a lot of these startups is what we call the funding valley of death. And because usually they're raising pretty large rounds at this stage, 15, 20, 25 million dollars to go set up maybe their first of a kind plant or their first pilot manufacturing facility. So they don't have any revenue necessarily at, at, this, at that point that they're going out to raise these large rounds. And that's very unusual for a lot of Silicon Valley. Usually at the A stage, especially for software startups, there's already some market traction going on. So a lot of investors won't even look at you know startups that are raising at that stage that don't have any any sort of commercial traction. So that's that's something we need to coach founders and help them work through and getting sort of navigating to the navigating them to the right partners. You know, it's, it seems like that's so prevalent in industries. I, I come from uh, the music industry before I jumped into tech and there's uh, like the sophomore slump. I'm not sure if you've heard that term, but like you release your first album, there's so much hype. And then the second album rolls around. It's like, ah, this guy's old. This girl, it's old news onto the next artist. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting how that happens in almost all industries. Um, is, is there something that founders might, might not understand about fundraising that is actually really important? 
maybe this is me coming from the perspective of that one and I might be partial in that way, but whenever I coach founders, even when it's not in our portfolio and I, you know, I coach founders through different incubator and accelerator programs, I think they underestimate the amount that investors, especially those in deep tech and climate tech, actually really want to understand the nuts and bolts of their technology. And will oftentimes in their pitches sort of just gloss over that and talk about the market and the big vision and sort of what they see as a go-to-market and the team, but really like a lot of these investors want to get under the hood and want to understand the techno-economics at the end of the day, like how your, how your technology actually enables like better unit economics and better sort of market positioning um, in the long run. And really making that tie clear is the number one piece of advice that I always give founders. Yeah. There's so much interest. There's so much interest. Do you want to invest? It's like, yeah, yeah let's let, let me understand exactly. it first. <laughs> like Rockstar team. It's, a, it's like the same. Sort of exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate we, we deviated from the question list a bit there, but just some curiosity points. Question number five. Um, I'm going to read out the quote just so the people who are listening audio-wise can, can hear it. So in the first clean tech wave, we misunderstood what technology could do for oil and gas as well as fossil fuel companies. Many had investments, excuse me, many had made investments with the assumption oil would become more expensive. But we found new ways of producing natural gas, for example, fracking. And as a result, people felt that we didn't have to worry about clean energy anymore because fossil fuels were going to be cheap again. What's your opinion on kind of that macro observation? I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but <laughs> I would say the, the first clean tech wave, clean tech 1.0, which was this investment in clean tech that happened about a, a decade ago um, and really flopped for the most part. I say the biggest, probably number one learning on that was the importance of unit economics and the importance of not having a green premium. Um, like it's exactly what you said. I think broad commercialization of fracking in those mid two thousands resulted in widespread adoption of natural gas because natural gas suddenly became so much cheaper. So even though you had all this clean energy technology on the market, solar, wind, hydropower, nuclear all of a sudden the fossil alternative become that much cheaper. And even though they had these disastrous environmental and community impacts, um, the market moved in that way and it moved away from, from clean tech 1.0. So without strong unit economics, without strong cost parity, um, I think companies found themselves struggling to really scale off um, you know, corporate commitments and altruism alone. So for climate solutions to really be widely adopted, there can't be a green premium. It needs to be a no-brainer from the from the business perspective. Um, and yeah, things can't scale off altruism alone. So let's talk about climate tech at large. Are there sectors or types of technologies that you think are a little overhyped? We, we, actually, let's start here. Which ones do you think aren't receiving the dollars you think it should? I would say folks who are working on nature-based restoration. And this directly ties with, I think, what you were going to ask for, which I think is overhyped in the space, which is what I would say would probably be like engineered direct air capture solutions. I think as, a, as an alternative, we should really be investing more into nature-based solutions and what, what I mean by that is, you know, things that are more scalable and oftentimes orders of magnitude, lower cost compared to engineered direct air capture 
solutions. And specifically within nature-based solutions, I think we need to be investing um, in folks who are doing the actual restoration or verifying like the true additionality of a lot of these projects. And I think that's so important because we recently have seen with, you know, there's been a lot of controversy in the carbon marketplace realm with like NCX and Vera over the true like impact and additionality of a lot of these projects. So we need to back. You know what, Luke, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you yeah. mind explaining that stuff? Uh, I'm not even familiar with uh, the NCX and Vera stuff, just for the listeners. Yeah, I think across the board, you know, in the last year or two, there's been, um, there have been these exposés on these carbon marketplace platforms that issue, that sort of act as this intermediate between carbon projects and, you know, the voluntary carbon market buyers. A lot of times these will, these will be corporations trying to reach their carbon neutral agreements. And there's been controversy over whether, you know, these projects are truly additional, whether they're actually causing environmental gains that would not have been there in the absence of those dollars or the investment of those carbon offsets. Um, so my point is, I think we need to be backing not the software platforms, the marketplaces, these sort of financial intermediaries, but actually what sort of these scan, these controversies, controversies I think are a symptom of is us not really having the proper tools, the proper picks and shovels of actually doing the restoration in the first place and verifying that the restoration has been done in like a high confidence way, right? That we, that the voluntary carbon market, that corporations can actually say, okay, we invested and bought these carbon offsets, offsets and that has actually led to environmental outcomes that would not have been there in the first place. So that's, you know, driven a lot of our investments, for example, in Dendro Systems, which is using drones to plant trees at 120 trees a minute and at a cost that's 10x lower, planting them at least 10x lower than planting them by hand. Or in the case of, you know, I talked about verification is so important. So that's why we invested in a company called Chloris Geospatial that's measuring carbon forest biomass carbon stocks from space using satellite imagery versus typically today it's done by somebody going out there, you know, by hand and sort of literally using a ruler to wrap around the tree and measure tree growth every however many of years. So being able to do that and actually being able to measure, um, you know, carbon accumulation in trees on a much more regular and high accuracy and, and low cost basis. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Um, a follow-up to that. Which which verticals do you see as the most promising as well? Because a lot of the technology that gets built today, you know, for example, AI. AI was a project, you know, in the 40s with Alan Turing, and we're only seeing it come to market today in this, you know, consumer product. What's your opinion? Feel free to talk about the uh, portfolio as well, because that uh, tree company really excited me. I think not even not even just within ecosystem restoration, but I think I think a lot of the technologies, especially within climate tech, I think overall is you know in venture we talk about pull demand and push demand a lot of the time, and sort of the importance of the distinction between those two. And so, and what I mean by that is you know pull demand means that there's already sort of a lot of fundamental demand in the marketplace that if you have a product or a service. You don't necessarily need to go about tooting it and selling it too much that there's already a lot of intrinsic 
demand in the marketplace for that versus push demand where you have to, as a startup, be a sort of market creator. And we see a lot of this with a lot of these marketplace and sort of software type of startups. But what I think is so exciting about climate tech overall, and specifically some verticals within climate tech that I can talk about, is that there is just a lot of this intrinsic whole demand, right? A lot of what climate tech is, is about reimagining like fundamental human industries from a more nature compatible perspective. So what gets me most excited, honestly, is um, like investments in heavy industry, really coming up with alternative chemistries to cement and steel, for example, which combines make up like a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. Like those are not going away anytime soon. The process for producing those is extremely dirty and decarbonizing them is critical, not just because they're causing all these emissions now, but we're going to continue to need these, especially as like global, as the global South develops and as economic development happens in these countries that, you know, maybe demand for those materials isn't there right now, but certainly going to be there in the next few, within the next decade, um, if not the next few decades. Um, so that, yeah, those sectors are, are sort of what excite me the most. Gotcha. And you know what? I should have asked this question earlier, but when it comes to the end product versus the process of actually creating the tech, like what comes to my, again, I'm not very educated on this stuff. I could get it totally wrong, but what comes to my mind is like solar panels, for example, the way solar panels are made from what I've seen on my, according to my YouTube and Wikipedia research, it's uh, <laughs> like, they aren't the nicest things, right? The chemicals that are required at the factories, the just the amount of heat, the conditions the workers actually work in, but the end product is you get energy from the sun, which is excellent, right? What what's your kind of take on that? I think it goes back to that techno economic side, but I'm curious what your opinion is. Yeah, we we typically like to evaluate the total impact on any investment that we make, um, and that includes sort of looking at the environmental impact of the process itself. Um, in addition to like the environmental impact of, you know, what would happen if this technology was adopted uh, at a certain volume. So we definitely take that into consideration in, in every investment that we make. And yeah, certainly like, yeah, sometimes you might have like maybe this one process, the incumbent process requires a lot of heat or energy um, and causes a lot of emissions. And maybe we're looking at a startup that's claiming, okay, we're going to do this at low temperature, so lower energy, and you think it's going to be you know, much, much better for the environment. But then as a result, maybe they have to use different chemicals or solvents to achieve the same level of production, right? We see this a lot, for example, in the extraction of critical minerals and medical metals and, and refining those metals. So shifting from, you know, pyrometallurgy to hydrometallurgy, you make, you need to make sure that, you know, those solvents don't have terrible environmental impacts, and maybe don't have tons of embodied emissions in their own production either, right? So really taking a whole systems level approach to assessing the trade-off in, in these things. Right. Let's jump back to Ad one. As we've mentioned a couple of times now, you guys focus on the early stage specifically, but are there plans to expand beyond that given how much capital is required for absolutely. some of these projects? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think even within our portfolio, we see like, okay, there are companies raising at the Series C and Series D stages already. And we've only been operating for like two and a half, three years. And we're like, dang, we <laughs> we, we wish we could, you know, invest in, in those winners. Um, so actually, we're raising an opportunity 
fund right now. Funny that you should ask to actually do. Talk, talk to us about it. <laughs> so raising a, an opportunity fund, its uh, target is $150 million to back the winners in our portfolio at the Series B stage and beyond. And also, part of that money is also earmarked for companies outside of our portfolio too, at the later stage that we think are exceptional. That's cool. Um, I, I'm not too sure if you can speak to this, but how does how does risk that I how does diligence play out differently at the seed stage versus the later stage? I, again, for students interested, because I, I think I think like some people from actually I should stop talking. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you're you're good. Uh, I think at the early stage, right? I think it, it's a matter of being pre-revenue, so you're mainly evaluating the technology, the team the market, the competition, and really developing conviction that this is the team and technology that will dominate the market, whatever your theory of change is. It just so happens our theory of change revolves around disruptive unit economics, but that might be different for other investors. Um, But then at the later stages, right, at the series B and beyond, you have that commercial traction. And so that becomes a much larger bearing um, in sort of the due diligence and doing all that financial modeling. Okay. That makes sense. Um, let's jump to some of the the more personal questions. Uh, number eight, nine, and ten. Let's start with the first one. So, always curious to ask this, but if you were to leave the venture industry, what would you miss the most? What would you miss the least? <laughs> I think that I've definitely missed the most. I, I tell people this all the time. I would miss the people and, and community of investors and entrepreneurs, and I think specifically maybe to the chagrin of investors in other sectors, but I think climate tech folks in general, I could say this about because we're all very like mission driven and everybody, I think like 80 to 90% of people, if not everybody I meet in the sector is, is mission driven and really wants, is in this to have, first of all, a huge impact on, on the planet. Um, and so as a result of that, I find people are very open to collaborate in order to achieve our shared goal in doing that. Yeah, so it's just a in, in general, just a great environment and group of people to be working with. Um, what I would probably miss the least is I think the constraints of venture capital. I think there are tons, there's tons of great work being done, not just within the climate space, but within larger sort of social and community and environmental impact spaces in general that just isn't venture backable, right? Um, sometimes we miss we miss out on those opportunities, or we don't even take a look. They're not even in our investable universe <laughs> as venture capitalists. No, it's true. Uh, so yeah, there. Even though uh, you know venture can do a lot, and it's about backing companies that, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, can rapidly scale and reach you know huge impact. Um, it doesn't catch. It doesn't catch everything. Okay, and then let me ask that next question: If you could ask everyone in the venture industry to start and stop doing one thing, what would it be? I think start, well, kind of there's a start and stop in one and goes back to that previous pain point around the funding valley of death. The valley of death is one symptom of this, but you know, d- I think deep tech in general just requires a bit more patience and a bit of a change in paradigm versus how you think about investments, right? It's you need to be a bit more patient with these companies reaching market and showing that product market fit. They're oftentimes also going to be more CapEx intensive versus other sectors like software, right? So as investors, I think we just need to be more conscious of that and start you know, really underwriting that mentality 
into how we approach the sector um, and not shying away from those types of, of challenges. Okay. Let me ask you this. This wasn't on the list, but what is something that you're passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? A lot of people have passions, but what is a passion of yours that you don't get asked about a lot? It doesn't come up very much that um, I think spirituality is uh, is a pretty big part of my life. Um, I, for the last couple of years, have been going to a Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist temple, like regularly and really studying that philosophy. And I think it has, I think it actually like coincided a lot with sort of my sort of awakening in climate and the development of my passion in climate, right? I think there is, you know, a pretty large spiritual like component to, to climate as well that mirrors that practice. Okay. Is, is there any, what would be a big lesson that you've taken away from that? Because I've, I've interviewed quite a few people that there was this Green Beret I interviewed who he said like his favorite time he's ever spent was at the Zen temple. So it's cool that you say that. Yeah, no, I appreciate this conversation because like, you know, a lot of times like religion and theology doesn't, <laughs> spirituality and business don't really, people don't really like cross over these two. But I think especially within climate, there's there's a lot of, learnings that we can take. And to answer your question, one that really resonated with me was just like the interconnectedness of everything, right? I think the climate crisis is a symptom of us being out of touch with nature in, you know, so many ways, in so many ways on the societal level. I think, you know, obviously our economy has been built on extraction, disregard to natural limits, you know, with this sort of fundamental ideology that no matter what position we get in, we can always dominate and engineer our way over nature, which is, you know, showing quite the opposite with the amount of natural catastrophes that we've been f- facing on an increasing basis lately. So that's at the society le- societal level. And then I think at the individual level, you know, I think people, a lot of people in modern society, people who live in cities, you know, don't really have a personal or deeper connection with nature anymore. And certainly don't realize, you know, how interconnected everything is. Like how many people know, you know, what it takes to grow their food or what it took in terms of the extreme amount of resources and, you know, other human power that went into, you know, making all their computers and phones or how forest changes in North America have actually been shown to cause precipitation changes, grout, drought, food instability in, you know, places a world away, actually in South America and Africa. So I think once we realize like how interconnected we all are, which is, you know, one of these also fundamental sort of teachings and principles of Buddhism, it really changes our, you know, entire outlook on everything. 100%. If, if there's anything that you want to mention, like maybe where people can find you if they want to reach out or at one, where would they go for that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, so at one ventures, you can check us out at at one ventures.com. Um, and you can find me at Luke at at one ventures.com. Always willing to chat with folks who might be exploring a pivot into the climate tech or climate tech venture capital world, or if you're a deep tech founder in, in the space and are working on an early stage idea, you know, we'd love to talk to you as well. Awesome. Okay. We'll leave it here. Luke, thank you so much. This is awesome. (laughs) Thanks, Cassius. Thanks for having me on.